You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. You look bad. You smell bad. Never been much of a bather. Look at your face. Something happened when you went through, Seth. You've got to get some help. I think you must be sick. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. I was not pure. The teleporter insisted in purity. I was not pure. I don't know what you mean. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Today, as part of our Hallow Rewind series, we'll be discussing The Fly. Starring Jeff Goldblum. I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over. Gina Davis. What happened? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly, perhaps she'll die. And John Getz. You say, if only I saw him. Show me. Directed by David Cronenberg. Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the podcast is about to begin. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> Come on, I stayed up all night dying my underwear. It's Devlin in London. Don't you get it? I'm finally onto something this big, huge. What? His cock? It's Patrick from London. <laughs> when I was a kid, I puked on my tricycle. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> welcome back, gentlemen, and welcome back, listeners, to our third episode in our bespoke series, Hallow Rewind, where we select films that we loved in our childhood that have got some small tangential link towards the Halloween series that were that is you know, fast approaching. My choice this week, and I have decided to choose David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986. Gents, would you like to know why I picked The Fly? It's funny, isn't it, when you're the host and you have to come <laughs> <in? laughs> <laughs> yeah. like out? I'd love to know, Gally. We should all individually ask you. Um, Gally, I would really love to know why you picked yeah. this film. Anyone else yeah. really want to know? Yes, please do. This one's a bit strange. Or is it? It's actually not that... It's not terribly unusual for me because like Terminator 2, Aliens, and indeed City Slickers 2, I actually saw The Fly <laughs> 2 first. I saw it late night on television wow. as a kid um, before I saw Cronenberg's version. And I remember being really intrigued uh, by the tapes passed on to the young Eric Stoltz hearing about this genius called Seth Brundle. And I genuinely had no idea about the first film. Uh, and then as I got older, uh, I saw, I actually, you know, I was about 13 and I saw Crash, not not that mm-hmm. one, yes. but the better one, uh, which I was way too young to definitely Spider. see. Spider. Yeah, indeed. Well, I saw too much of him probably at 13. But I became totally obsessed with, uh, with Cronenberg and, and he kind of, it kind of bled into like discovering David Lynch and, and I sought out all of Cronenberg's films. Uh, you know, I, st- I went into Dead Zone, Scanners, uh, and I just, I just wanted to watch them all. And eventually, I got to The Fly, and it absolutely scared the shit out of me. Um, but it also, because you know, I'm a bit 
bit saccharine. I was also like really deeply touched and saddened by the the sort of tragic nature of the story. So um so it ended up becoming like a real late night comfort film that I used to watch. Wow. Uh, and then and then as I got to like film school, I know it's a bit strange. Uh, and then I, as I got to film school, I I became obsessed as well with how Cronenberg constructed this seemingly really small film with really big ideas. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of my history with the fly. And it very much is in my wheelhouse, the blend of sci-fi and horror. Um, yeah, it's absolutely my lane, but I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear what your history is with the film, but I'll start with you, Patrick. Ooh, that caught me off guard. Uh, <laughs> history of the film, this, we, we've been doing quite well recently. It's been very easy for me to, to think back on these films that, that we've been watching because, you're going to be bored of me telling the same story, but this is one I watched with my mum and dad. And this is one that I particularly remember my mum and dad quoting a lot. They still do to this day to each other, to me. And at the time they'd quote it to me and I didn't know what the fuck they were on about because um, this is something they went to see at the cinema. In fact, mum says this is the first film I saw at the cinema because she was pregnant with me uh, at the time, 1986. And, um, and, they, what, the quote that they love the most is, uh, cheeseburger because <laughs> they're very enamored by Jeff's uh, mannerisms and the way he uses his hand and, and his punctuation. <laughs> um, and they always say, my mum loves the sentence at, at the end where, um, he's got the three, oh, skipping well ahead. Sorry, everyone. Um, but you go there. You know, and he's telling uh, Gina Davis what to do. <laughs> Mum and dad love all that. And they quote each other that all the time. And oh, it's when he's fully funny. developed, it's the flying yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, Mum and dad quote that to each other all the time. You go there, and we both end up there. And if, if we're out shopping or something, when we've gone on holiday, and I wanted to go to a shop on my own, they go, you go there, we'll be over here. I'm not, like, this is my mum doing the Jeff Goldblum mannerisms and everything, and... These are my memories of, of this film. But very interestingly, watching it again for the Haller Rewind uh, re- um, <laughs> episode, uh, a very strange thing happened where I became very aware that the version I watched as a child, which is why they allowed me to watch it, was um, a TV edited, recorded version. So mm. it, it would have been uh, edited on TV and they'd have recorded it and I'd have watched it then because I don't remember the vomit at all. Oh, um, right. Yeah, so watching that was very interesting this week, but it was, I think I'll hold back a little bit here, but there's some very everlasting images that I had from The Fly, and um, I did a little series of Guess the Film quips recently as videos, and one of those scenes that stuck with me, I I did... um, one of those scenes from the fly because, because I remembered it and I was thought it was amazing. Uh, the fingernails, the, the fingernails, Matt. Yeah. Every yeah. time I actually lost a fingernail when I was about, uh, how old I, about 10 years, nine, 10 years old. I hammered uh, it. I was, I was making like a Robin hood, Prince uh, of thieves tree house. <laughs> <laughs> and I, <laughs> I hammered my own nail and it came off and I rem- oh, yeah. every time I think of that and nails, I think of the fly. Um, yeah. Oh, and I think it's because I was in love with Gina Davis at the time because of uh, Cutthroat Island, and I think that's why they allowed me to watch uh, it. You uh, were the Cutthroat <laughs> Island fan? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> I really was. <laughs> uh, Matt, how about you? Well, this was a late night BBC Two, probably, uh, on my grandparents' old telly, which was kindly donated to me when they finally got a new one. 
Um, it was like seriously vintage old thing. And, uh, I'll have been about seven or eight when I got the TV, according to my mum. Uh, it was put in my bedroom to help me sleep because I would constantly wake up and bother my parents. So it was a bit of a lifesaver for them, I think. Uh, I always had something playing when I went to sleep from that day on. Like when, when the sleep time, timer finally came around, it was much easier to do. But, you know, I'd always go to sleep with a familiar film or a, a TV show or later on DVDs and commentaries and things like that playing. And like even to this day, I sort of awkwardly sleep with one earphone in listening to YouTube or something like that. But uh, the night that I sort of absorbed the fly, I recall uh, <laughs> vividly being physically shaken by it and just overwhelmingly sad. Um, very similar to, to Galley in this way, I think. It was just too much existential dread for a young lad to take, I think. I don't know if I was preteen, but probably around there. Um, I watched it alone with this giant brick-sized remote control in one hand in case it got too scary. I used to watch all the late-night films like that. I sort of had my finger on the trigger ready to switch the channels if it, if it ever got too too scary. Um I just needed that security of having an out if it got a bit freaky. But yeah, I was, I was pretty young. So, um, in, in, in retrospect, I was too young to fully understand it, I think, and process the fly. Um, I ended up not really knowing what to do with myself at midnight or whatever time it was when it finished. Um, it was the first film I remember seeing that had a downbeat ending. Um, not just downbeat, but deeply shocking and saddening and i think everything i'd seen until then had had a, a happy ending or a somewhat upbeat ending like all the amblin stuff uh and it, the, even the darker disney stuff resolved itself in the end and like et you know et doesn't fall apart horribly and you know pull his fingernails off and <laughs> he just goes he just goes home but um i I may have been, it may have been the first time in my life that I felt genuinely depressed. So thank you, David Cronenberg, for that. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I'll try a little bit harder today to try and articulate it because I really didn't really understand or comprehend what I'd seen then. I, I just, um, felt scarred by it. Um, however, I sort of returned to it over the years and to the sequel too. Um, the fly too, by the way, still holds the record for, the best head crushed by an elevator yeah. in, in film history. And it's one of my favorite effects ever. It's so cool. Um, so I kind of returned to both of them really with a, with a deep twisted fascination really. And, uh, I, I love the massive four hour making of on the DVD. I've, I've watched that a couple of times. So, um, but I sadly couldn't get hold of that before this podcast because it's back in England. So, uh, I'll be largely trivialist today but yeah that's basically my experience how about you devlin um i'll have to keep it quite brief because honestly i have far less of a uh a history with this than uh than, it, than all of the rest of you it sounds like which um i i don't remember there being any kind of traumatic uh viewings of it in my youth i don't i don't have any memories associated with childhood with it which is uh, I assume means that I didn't see it until later in life, probably late teens at the, at the earliest. Um, and w I watched it this week. And while I did remember an awful lot of it, um, 
I was kind of caught off guard because maybe when I'd watched it previously and I probably had only seen it maybe once, possibly twice, um, maybe I hadn't absorbed it. Maybe I'd been watching far too many films at the same time. It's possible that I watched this back at university when I used to get a stack of five or six videos out of the library and burn through them in a day or two. Um, so it's possible that it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. So um, I watched it. Uh, I actually watched it last night um, uh, on a laptop, which I'm not a big fan of, of watching films on, but you know, needs must. And uh, uh, I was surprised at how shook I was by it. I'll reserve more uh, than, than that for now. But um, yeah, so uh, oddly not really a great deal of, of memories associated with it. Right, well, um, gents, before I dispose of the plot, I wanted to just know what your history was with um, with David Cronenberg and whether or not you've assimilated his entire back catalogue or if you, like like many audience members, may have just seen one or two of his, uh, of his films. You know, the more recent ones being a sort of a history of violence, which did particularly well. Uh, existence or existence however you want to say it with a uh, with old jude law or um or like i said before um spader's crash where you see all of spader um that yeah, was I that mean, was the first cronenberg i'd ever seen was was crash did that have any connection to andy willoughby's class again in the, the as film level chris or did you just see it maybe although own? i think i'd seen it just before then, I think, um, I mean, it was such a hugely controversial film and, uh, uh, one of the most controversial films at a time when we would have finally been kind of old enough to be paying attention to this sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, that's what we, drew we, me in. Yeah, we did a band cinema or an extreme cinema module and we did Crash with Andy. And, uh, he would also talk about Videodrome a lot and sort of do impressions. That is true. He did love a bit of Videodrome. <laughs> Yeah, he did. But uh, I'm kind of into Cronenberg for a couple of his earlier pieces as well. Uh, Stereo and Crimes of the Future. I don't know if you've seen them. They're usually put together on a, on a DVD. Um, I found them online. They're both black and white 16 millimeter, um, early kind of a very artistic efforts. And, uh, I, when I made my failed 16 millimeter Bolex, um, movie that sort of had a lab error and uh, I lost a lot of footage. I was kind of inspired by a lot of these early uh, debut films that were made on 16. And I, I remember looking at them and uh, yeah, like you said, Gally, some of the later ones, Spider, I remember I had on DVD and um, obviously Scanners was a, was a big one. That's one of the Scanners and Videodrome I kind of associate with, with Cronenberg a lot, but yeah, sandwiches in the box. Uh, the, the fly was probably uh, one of the bigger names, bigger titles associated with him. I think. What I found interesting revisiting it, and and this is this is kind of the beauty of us doing this show, is that you know normally this this would this film would just kind of sit there, and Cronenberg's filmography would just sit there, and I wouldn't really apply all that much thought, other than he's made a lot of films. Um, but it, you know nowadays, uh, I don't particularly like the the phrase, but that the the coined phrase of elevated horror which i don't like because it suggests that other horror is kind of superfluous and nonsense which is not true but i do feel like cronenberg fit if you're gonna if you're gonna categorize his films especially his horror films they are 
they are somewhat elevated. They are pieces of art. They're not just, you know, it's not, it's not Friday the 13th. It's not about, um, sort of body counts or. Hmm. What was, what was that thing that, uh, me and you used to talk about that? I'm sure we used to quote that thing from the League of Gentlemen about the two lads in the video shop. How many killings? How many killings? Yeah. It's Tracula Blur. Oh, it's a blue movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah I, I didn't know what you guys thought of that because, um, if you ever listened to an interview with David Cronenberg, he's a very serious man, but kind of serious with a wicked sense of humor. I get the sense that whenever he, whenever he's being interviewed, he's sort of thinking, right, I'm going to joust with, with the person who's interviewing me and I'm just going to yeah. try and underhandedly keep being wicked and basically amuse myself because I'm not going to be terribly amused by these benign questions that I'm being asked. And yeah. I've always thought that of him whenever I've listened to him speak, because he's a very, very interesting individual to listen to, even if you don't like his films. Yeah, he's he's very uh, erudite, isn't he? He's, he's kind of, yeah. he always feels like the smartest person in the room. And mm-hmm. like, it, it's interesting watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, because you can hear him directing. He's one of these directors that clearly directs off camera as the take is happening. He, he clearly enjoys doing that. And, uh, some of the stuff he's saying, he's just giggling away. He's laughing. And, uh, there's one scene that we can maybe talk about later with the, um, the, the, the cat monkey or the monkey cat. And oh, yeah. he, oh. he actually was the, he was wielding the, uh, the lead pipe in that scene. And he's kind of joking, <laughs> uh, joking about it as he, as he batters this thing. But, um, yeah, he, he strikes me as both, both being really, Super intelligent and, and having a, a, a kind of a down to earth sense of humor too. So yeah, I, I really like him. Did you, um, did you, I watched, um, a little bit of the behind the scenes footage and you're exactly right about directing actors, uh, off camera. There's a bit mm. where, uh, later on in the film when, uh, Ronnie, Gina Davis's character pulls Seth's, uh, bottom jaw off and they're, they've got the <laughs> shot and the behind the scenes camera is just, just to the left of the main, uh, the main camera, and you can hear Cronenberg saying, Gina, stop laughing. <laughs> Be terrified. <laughs> Be so, terrified. It, yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, obviously, we all, we all imagine and think like, oh, what would it have been like? And, uh, and obviously, mm. it's such a professional, uh, environment, but how amazing <laughs> that, like, you know, she's, she's at one second being like terrified, screaming, and then you can actually hear her like laughing her head off. It's like, stop, <laughs> stop laughing. Well, there's, there's one more where, um, uh, Brundlefly, there's a deleted scene where Brundlefly, uh, kind of crawls down the side of a building and this, this leg, this insect leg starts to grow <laughs> out of his, his side. And, uh, there's a behind the scenes bit of that as well. And Cronenberg's directing, he's saying, no, no, tilt, tilt down, tilt down. You've got to, don't let it go out of frame. And then he's kind of going like that. And then. At the, at, yeah, exactly. At the end of the take, he says, "Roll over to um, <laughs> uh, to Jeff to Jeff Goldblum," and uh, everyone kind of cracks up. You can tell that the the crew like him as well. I think that's very revealing. And mm. There's also Matt something I learned researching into this, which says everything about his sense of humor. I think was uh, he was introduced to uh, Scorsese well before this, and Scorsese mm. said he reminded him of a, a doctor or something. He said he was like uh, a, a Hollywood uh, plastic surgeon. Yeah. Plastic surgeon. And so apparently the scene where we we have the dream sequence in here and he's there as a doctor was a little nod and a cheeky wink to that. To, yeah, that's cool. 
which I think says everything about his, his sense of humor, but also about him, him as a person, the crew liking him. Um, Chris Wallace, the, the creator of the, um, the effects of the fly, the physical stuff. He said that he'd never worked with anyone like Cronenberg because usually a director would say, ah, oh, it needs to be bigger. It needs to be bloodier. It needs to be scarier. You know, it needs to be bloodier, you know, whatever. And Cronenberg mm. would say, no, it needs to, it needs to look more sympathetic. The eyes need to have more sympathy and um, confusion about them. And he really wasn't used to that kind of collaboration with a director before. And I thought that was a, a really telling yeah. thing about the, the person that, that he is. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's very revealing of artists. Like there's some musicians like that too, that, that say, um, that don't describe to a producer, for example, how they want something to sound specifically. They talk about it conceptually and then they allow that person to be creative in, mm-hmm. in, and t- turning that concept into something with their own, through their own talents and through their own vision. So yeah, people like that are, are really great to work with, I think. Yeah. And I suppose the final point I've got on Cronenberg, just for, for those listeners that might not be aware, but sort of a deeply loyal and quite, um, he's got his sort of ideologies. So, you know, not wanting to film outside of, uh, outside of Canada, you know, sticking with a crew that he trusts and continue, you know, working with them on several projects all the way through his early works into big budget fair. It's, um, it does speak a, a lot to the, you know, a lot, a lot about him and about, uh, what he values as a, as an individual and also as an artist. It's, uh, it's really quite inspiring. And, uh, and like you say, it just means certainly when I'm watching his films, I feel like, well, here's, here's somebody that is worth my time and I should just give his, give his films a chance because they're not, you know, this is probably the most mainstream, I would suggest maybe of, of all of his films. Maybe mm-hmm. you could argue history of violence, but. Mm. It's, it's probably a little bit ma- more mainstream, although there is a '69 sex scene in it, so it's not exactly, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not exactly Hook, but, um, but yeah, it, it just. <laughs> I don't know why I put all the things. There's films with '69s in, and there's Hook. Apologies, I don't know where that came from. Um, well, I think this this one is probably the most widely um accessible because j- purely because of what we've said so far apart from devlin we've all had more or less childhood experiences with this one even though it really wasn't appropriate for for that age so i, I think kids are seeking this one out for some reason or another so, talking of age and my experience with cronenberg anyway i do recall years ago i've got family in brighton i remember being there on some sort of i think my cousin my nephew uh, cousin would be born or something uh it wasn't long after that and crash was on tv but i remember specifically the adults discussing whether i could watch it with them and there, there was like some cooler older cousins that i had there who were just like 16 17 18 whatever um and you know i really wanted to be cool with them because they i they were really excited about this film they'd read about it they were kind of film nerds at the time as well and my dad was a big fan of uh Cronen- Berg. I only really made that recollection now, really, because it goes back to what I was saying last week where, uh, you know, my dad really likes realistic kind of gore and violence on screen and gets really into it. He finds it quite thrilling. But I, that's, I remember that really vividly, uh, with Crash and I remember watching it. I, I didn't understand it at all. And, you know, I had to be well, kind I hope of. You wouldn't at that age. No, but I remember really wanting to make a big effort to be kind of grown up and, 
in that grown up environment and trying to, to mm. watch it that way. And then remember when I was a grown up and uh, watched history of violence, I remember watching it at university. Um, and I had, a, I had a date round as well. She, um, <laughs> she did not want to watch it. Let's just say she wanted to do uh, other things. But uh, she was what, annoyed. <laughs> she wanted to watch her. Uh, I wanted, and then I was kind of the bad guy for wanting to watch this film because I got really into it and I thought it was excellent. <laughs> Come on, Gally, give us a plot synopsis. Come on. Forgive me, this is absolutely nowhere near Patrick, Devlin, or Matt's plot summaries. When scientist Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, completes his teleportation device, he decides to test his abilities on himself. Unbeknownst to him, a housefly slips in during the process, leading to a merger of a man and insect. Initially, Brundle appears to have undergone a successful teleportation, but the fly cells begin to take over his body as he becomes increasingly fly-like. Brundle's girlfriend, Gina Davis, Ronnie Quaif, we'll get into that, is horrified. <laughs> Hook. <laughs> yep, Hook is horrified as the person she once loved deteriorates into a monster. I've obviously not covered all, but it's actually quite a simplistic plot. And one of the things that I mm-hmm. wanted to discuss is a little bit of a bugbear of mine. Um, and that is, <laughs> that, um, <laughs> I, I get really irked and it's, I know that it's kind of trivial and a little bit, and it shouldn't really trigger me, but I get really irked by the fact that everyone refers to this as a remake. Um, now, in the past week, I know that Patrick and I think it was you, Matt, had said that you'd seen the 1950s. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I, I watched oh, no, it I as well, yeah. Uh, Patrick's seen oh, it. All right, okay. So it was Patrick and Devlin that had seen the uh, 1950s Vincent Price version. I also sought it out, and it just reaffirms that this is absolutely not a remake and a comp- and it is completely encapsulated as an adaptation of a short story, not mm-hmm. a remake. It just, it, I know it's small, but I always find that that's just slightly reductive and just not true because it's loosely based on a George Lagerlain's 1957 short story uh, of the same name called The Fly, which was weirdly published in Playboy, which, you know, got, gone are the days of uh, putting in classic film premises in Playboy. But, but yeah, that was, you know, it just kind of irked me a little bit. But I still found the 50s version deeply creepy and scary. Good. It is, yeah. yeah. It, it has um, it has some kind of passages in the middle where the, the, the pace slackens in the way that a lot of these films tend to. But yeah. that opening is uh, is great, isn't it? The, oh, the, I... it's, well, I'm still haunted by the... That ending, when that's, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, but scary. Oh, when, that sp- when that spider is coming to try and eat our protagonist's fl- uh, human head on fly body. <laughs> oh, I was, oh, it's gross. I wanted to ask Devlin about this because there's a Bart Simpson spoof in the. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that right? It's absolutely taken from it. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's. <laughs> That's really good. Sorry, I was just remembering the bit where the the bar with the fly with the fly head is eating the bag of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> now I didn't watch it, but did you not find it played a bit comedic? You know, just the idea of the arm and the head swapping. You think you got to put us in the time? I think yeah. Like, it's easy to say that and look back on that now, but in 1950s, it, it was a very um, prevalent 
kind of horror, B horror movie, uh, Vincent Price, big name. And it, it the tra- if you've not seen the trailer, the trailer's really quite something. Mm. It largely focuses on this red screen and it has, I think it's black lines just drawing themselves across the screen as though it's a fly going across with audible moments of I've killed him. I will help me and that. And it, it's mm. a really, terrific old school trailer but it it does that thing in in the 50s that is uh, it hides the surprise for a long time where i think here with cronenberg's the fly um we the deterioration is the key here you know yeah. it's not that uh yeah h- hiding anything until a big big uh shock it, it's, it's shocking to see the development well, well sorry not the development the the deterioration yeah, when you say like the the structure of of hiding the uh, the big reveal, but also like the structure of the film being that you have this mysterious opening scene of um, yeah of a man being discovered under a hydraulic press and his wife <laughs> running away and then and then confessing to the murder. Mm. Uh, Vincent is that Price. tied into the idea of squashing a fly? Is that all kind of connected to that? Oh, I think that's probably you're probably onto something there, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was that they they he wanted to destroy the the you know what he'd done to himself because he was worried that it would um, taint his legacy, which legacy mm-hmm. being a word that definitely does cross over into both versions. I mm. think also at the time, you know, like nuclear war was very scary, especially in America. Uh, and that film played into the advancement of technology mm, and what yeah. it can do, which is a very frightening thing. We hadn't quite gone to space successfully at that time, I don't think. Um, And I think it was very much of its time. I didn't see it as comedic, Matt, but it's very easy to show someone who, someone young today, you know, Hollywood mainstream CGI films and to look at that and, and, you know, the fly is a blown up fly's head on on his, Mm. on him. It's quite good. But I think so, Dev, and it's still, well, well, I, I haven't seen that in context. Then, would you recommend it for to people to? to the check Fly it out is in, in excellent. Fall? I I love it. It's a mm. it's another film that I remember very fondly when I was young uh, for my film education, so to speak. Oh, back to what Gally said before about the uh, the reimagining. Uh, it, I, I looked at it the same way. It's like this feels like uh, the 1986 version feels like a new vision and uh, and an altered concept too. I don't know too much about the original, but. Uh, it's less of a remake and it, it's not like a, a, a mediocre do-over like you often see mm. where it just shares the title and nothing else. Yeah. Uh, it's a full-on reimagining by a, a director in his, in his I mind. don't know if it's a reimagining though either. I think it's just oh, no, Patrick, him, it him making his own yeah. film. No, I, I, and there are, there are elements of the original that, that cross over. No, I, I agree with that, Patrick, but material. you've got to, um, I think you've got to look at it as far as thematically. Mm-hmm. They, they are so different. They really are so, so different. And, yeah. and, and the, and the other thing as well is not, not to, let's say a remake doesn't necessarily need to have, um, kind of a three-hander with, uh, changing the dynamics between certain characters, etc. But I don't know. Did you, listen, we're not like a podcast that does loads of trivia because listen, if you want to, if you want to read trivia, you can find it out there. It's fine. But one of the things that I did find fascinating, I do think is actually relevant, is that I didn't, one, did not realize that it was Mel Brooks that, that would produce this, uh, Cronenberg version. And, and two, that Cronenberg was actually brought in after the original director, um, had to leave the project under tragic circumstances because, um, 
well, yeah, yeah, his uh, his daughter had unfortunately uh, passed away and he had to leave leave the film. Um, so it was one of those kind of really crazy serendipitous things where all th- all these different events had to line up because Cronenberg was supposedly going to make Total Recall with Dino De Laurentiis and then walked away because he wasn't going to get creative control over over the film and and that was it he walked away no they they said he wrote too much of the philip k dick version didn't they but Mm. they wanted was it raiders of the lost ark on mars yeah (laughs) well i mean you kind of get that with arnie a little bit um but but no it was so and and i i I do think one of the one of the clever things that cronenberg did did do because actually he got a script and i listened to an interview with him where he said the script he thought was was the structure was great was fine but he hated the characters and he thought the dialogue was trash. So he said, I'll do the film as long as you let me basically rewrite the characters and rewrite the dialogue. And one of the things he introduced, which I think is very, very clever, and it relates to Titanic, Matt. So please bear with me. <laughs> strap in. Oh, strap okay. in indeed. Um, the, the love triangle and also the the idea of using fledgling love as a tragic kind of mechanism to tug at the heartstrings. I thought that was fantastic. And it's one of the things that I mm. really do react to, to the film. And, 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 and again, I always use Danielle, my fiance, as a bit of a barometer. When she watched the film, she was not only grossed out and horrified, but at the end, I mean, you said it, Matt, you kind of bummed out, but she was genuinely like heartbroken for the fact that this, this, yeah. this couple that you really get to like never, never get to go where you think they, their love might have got to um and and i think it's very very clever because it properly grounds the extraordinary in this kind of easy relatable human conflict story between two characters that are in love and an ex arsehole boyfriend i think it's yeah i love it just going back to the idea of it being a remake or is it a reimagining i guess um uh, when people generally trash the idea of remaking things especially things which were good or successful or, or or at least have a reputation for being as such that um there tends to be this and the thing get held up mm-hmm. as the uh as the yeah. antithesis mm-hmm. of that and i would also throw the blob remake in which is kind of a little less heralded <laughs> yeah. and is also a little more silly but the blob remake yeah. is also fucking brilliant which has the same cinematographer as this Mark i like the invasion of the body snatchers remake as well uh but that was a bit later just just the, um, the very interesting time devlin like yeah and it's I, I did a bit of uh on my notes like from the 50s to the 80s, these, these, like you just said, these great, well, I'll call them remakes for now, Gally, just for argument's sake. Um, and like right now, we're in the middle of 30 years later from the 80s, we've got all these nostalgic remakes of a yeah. similar vein, which is more pop culture in it. And you have, kind of, you uh, have the, the thing, sequel slash yeah, remake uh, yeah. thing. Like they don't even bother changing the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can see the kind of, um, there's, there's been a lack of advancement and a, a maybe a, just a sort of a lack of, of quality. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you want to put invasion of the body snatches in there as well, the, uh, the, the 1950s version is, is, is also fantastic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but the, the fly is usually on the top of lists for best remake ever. Mm, yeah. Mm. Uh, and I guess like you were saying, Gally, they, they do that by just breaking it down 
to, to its very basic kind of bare bone structure and then creating mm-hmm. an entirely and different title thing. and yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you'd have to help me with the, uh, as far as the themes of the, the original, cause I still haven't seen it in full, but the, you know, the, the, the remake or the reimagining has more, um, you know, differing themes because of the time, I suppose you've got, uh, this idea that we shouldn't tamper with or experiment with things, you know, as Neil from the young ones again would say, uh, techno fear. And, uh, it, it's, there's also this Kafka esque thing. Um, it, it gets chucked around a lot Kafka esque, but this is very a metamorphosis, isn't it? You've got, uh, Gregor who is faced with his own mortality and his life experiences and regrets. He's crawling on the floor, crawling on, you know, the walls and the ceiling. He can only eat rotten food. Um, and then the people around him kind of realize that he must be, you know, dispatched of, or else they'll get dragged into it and, uh, that their lives could be ruined too. So again, there's a lot of parallels between the, the two of those. Um, I know Cronenberg talked a lot about, um, wh- whether it was kind of allegorical of AIDS or, or cancer. Um, it, it, there's certainly a fear of aging there. And, you know, there's lines like, what's happening to me? Am I dying? His teeth and his hair are falling out. Yeah. And the appearance um, when he comes yeah. out on the two walking sticks is, yeah. is, oh, the, yeah. most, is the most kind of obvious one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, Matt, I, I found that really interesting because I read the, the reviews of the Times that, and, and, and I guess it's, it's easy to see why, critics and audiences would immediately kind of just point towards the social zeitgeist you know what was current at the time well aids was the pandemic of the time that was prevalent so of course cronenberg the thing got that too right it was all over carpenters the thing with the blood tests and everything it's all not to say that that's lazy but it's kind of a little bit dismissive of the the wider themes because i was absolutely with yeah. what you're saying which is one of the things that really scares me and maybe it's because i'm a bit older now but uh, and i'm facing my own mortality in the face <laughs> but the, the the idea of aging and sort of wilting away the way that uh Seth's character does absolutely you know it creeps up on you and it it, it you can you don't even need to like sort of consciously process it. Subconsciously, you're watching it going, Oh God, it's good. It's a horrible existence awaiting me in a few more years time. <laughs> and, and, and the film really does tap into it. And as you say, he says lines that kind of just poke at the idea, um, of that actually happening to him. And because well, he talks about a purpose and, and one of the things about growing old is that you are, you end up losing purpose and he's searching for it as he gets older, like you would search for yeah. meaning in life. And uh, I found that all really fascinating and just kind of so subtextual in this film that could easily be described as just a bit of a monster movie. There's a lot. I think there's a lot to um, if we want to try and unpack. Though there's a lot in this film, isn't there? And mm. Matt, c- compared to the '50s one, I think the '50s ones are far more basic storytelling uh, and p- problem uh, for the protagonist r- rather mm. than. I th- this uh, Cronenberg's fly definitely is loaded um, with subtext and, and everything. Well, uh, the, the original is far more like family and problem and overcoming okay. uh, and yeah. trying to. Um, that th- their their issue in the original one is can he reverse it? And you know, right. uh, and, and that's the main drive of the film because can he there, undo there what is, he's done? Well, there's a fly 
there is the fly with a human head and hand flying around. <laughs> so, and then he is a human with a fly head and a fly hand. So he wants to capture that fly and re- try and reverse it scientifically. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's far more simpler thematically there, but there is, for me, there's certainly an underlying, uh, what horror films did in the fifties was play on the, the fear of science, fear mm. of science fiction and science development and um, where we were going in the fifties. I read somewhere uh, a really interesting take on it about, um, that it was like, um, uh, the idea of being, uh, zapped up and then sent somewhere else, like, uh, was mm. like television. It's like Willy Wonka and the chocolate. Uh, yeah. You know, when they, yeah, exactly. they have it in that in a more playful was, manner, but yeah. Yeah. In the mid fifties, yeah. like the idea of, you know, People can vaguely understand how cinema works and that it's a piece of yeah. celluloid that you shine a light through so you understand how it gets there. Whereas the idea of how a television picture actually gets into your house is like somewhat uh, slightly yeah. unsettling. And miniaturizing too, like something it, like Land of the Giants or something. But it's also yeah, wireless yeah. as well, Matt. So the wireless thing is kind of mind blowing in the fifties for that time because mm. this is teleportation. Of course. In, well, in that way. What I liked about the, the, uh, the 1986 one was that it wasn't symbolic or allegorical of any one thing in particular, I didn't think. Mm. I think you can read it in many different ways. And it has what Tolkien used to say, uh, mm-hmm. an applicability rather than being allegorical. You know, the ring can mean anything. Like I, I was quitting smoking when I watched, um, Lord of the Rings for the first time properly. And the ring became that to me, you know, it was like, uh, I, you could use My it in, in that sense, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you can you can apply whatever you know if if it's addiction or whatever. Um, I, I think cancer was only really used to to illustrate this idea. Uh, I know Cronenberg said this to Gina Davis. I think, uh, what if a man was dying of cancer and this this love story was happening at the same time? Rather than turning into a fly, it's a man dying of cancer and treating it with that level of seriousness. But, but then uh, also, so- Matt, then we get into the, uh, I think it's, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but she says, um, they look into abortion because the baby's, she believes the baby to be disabled. Mm-hmm. And they say the father's disabled. And, and there's the element there, yeah. a whole new conversation of abortion and abortion laws. And it's kind of backstreet in the film here oh, totally. as well, which is really interesting. And that, that ties into like, it, it's not in a science fiction vein necessarily that they're mm. trying to make it like a medical issue. It's like a yeah. more of a human drama approach. And from what you just said there, there's also this idea of, uh, personal identity slipping away, like something like mm-hmm. dementia or, uh, and well, a, yeah. a, a loss of who he is, uh, that there's involuntary ticks and, uh, it becomes very disturbing to watch him lose it o- over time. Mm-hmm. Well, the film could also be read as you, you mentioned addiction there and it's absolutely addiction to something. And it's the, he, he puts the peer pressure on the girls to do he it. He says as well. it's like a drug, doesn't it? It purifies yeah. him C- completely. And, but then also in the eighties, there was kind of a, uh, it blew up co- cosmetic surgery at the time and, and mm-hmm. altering your appearance. And I think that becomes woven into the tapestry of this film a little bit as well. Sure. Along with just to put another quote from Jeff Goldblum in another film we're very familiar with, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, mm-hmm. they didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah. And yeah. there's all these thematics going that, on. That uh, fusion of man and machine. Yeah. At the end, he's actually literally yeah. fused yeah. with it because he's halfway out of the pod when he goes. Yeah. So, like, man and his creation, it ends, it ultimately kills him. The thing that he's made becomes part of him and, you know, 
wrecks him to the point where he, he he's just uh, he needs to be put out of his misery. It's mm. the, the modern Prometheus story. Mm. Yes. We're back to Frankenstein. What Cronenberg does in this is he absolutely subverts that that classic tale that we know of the beautiful princess that turns this monster into a human. And we see it the other way around where they fall in love and then he becomes a monster and she rejects him, uh, uh, essentially. And But she has to watch painfully as he turns into this mm-hmm. this person that she does no longer recognize. And, uh, and again, it feeds into that tragic nature of it. What's fascinating to me on this watch was that she, we know she's got a background of a, a boyfriend who's a, a dick and whether she attracts that kind of person or not, she, you know, and her getting into a new relationship and someone who turns out to be just as bad as her ex-boyfriend in a in large part of the film, I thought yeah. was quite an interesting look on relationships yeah. and kind of domestic abuse as well. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's kind of like, um, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword in the last couple of years, but, uh, like the idea of a, a very toxic brand of masculinity that yes. Staphis, is it Staphis? Staffers, yes. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it's reminded me of the Channel 4 sitcom Staff Let's Flats. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Staff is a, uh, uh, um, is a, is a domineering kind of bully, yeah. refuses to get out of her life, uh, uh, drops in unannounced as kind of, what um, a knob showering at a flat. Yeah, what an axe. Like, like revels. Patrick, he was, he was in the neighborhood <laughs> oh, and he off. felt a bit stupid. <laughs> 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 he just been washing his balls. Yeah. Fuck, you know? And, and he's, uh, uh, I've seen write-ups and reviews which say that, oh, perhaps that the story flips somewhat and that he becomes somewhat of a hero character. I don't believe that he does. I think that he's continuing to be like a, a, a domineering possessive type and, it's just he gets I mean, his comeuppance in a way, but, yeah. and, and there is a kind of he, he he does become more supportive and helpful. Yeah, but he, he's still he's, a knob, and you he, he he kind is, of he's, he gets a he gets a semi hero moment by saving Ronnie, but actually, if you if you look at it, he's he's still marginalized. Yeah, it's, it's he's the only character to return in the uh, second true. film as well. Well, I, I thought it's quite clever on Cronenberg's part as like the effort he puts in to demonize Stathis. And make him the target of our disgust and, uh, Ronnie's earlier on. Uh, we like Seth at that point, but then Seth's descent becomes even more staggering as he kind of passes Stathis on his way down. Yeah. He becomes so like yeah. abhorrent and abusive and like arrogant and yeah, eventually kind of, of murderous mania that, that comes with like achieving. It was just like the exact moment I achieve my life's work. I become my true self. Whatever Stathis did previously pales in comparison to, to what Brundlefly ultimately <laughs> does. Like he's, you know, it, when alongside Brundlefly, he, he does kind of emerge as a hero of sorts, but not really. I, I agree with, with you when you say he's not really a hero, but he does kind of one handed, uh, uh, redeem himself at, at the end a little, but yeah. Matt, though, isn't it interesting? And maybe it speaks to the strength of Goldblum's performance that I, Sort of forgave Brundle, even even when he's melting. His, his <laughs> oh, we're still on Brundle's side at that point. <laughs> we're still sort of like, yeah, but melt him. He's all right. Like, <laughs> yes. 
there is there is this incredible um turning point though for Seth because th- there's almost the liberation of sex for I think Cronenberg wrote something about this that he saw his sex scene in here as kind of like the the nerd having sex for the first time and being kind of liberated in that way. Mm. And soon after it, it's blind jealousy that really turns him. Yeah. And you know, like it is the flyer metaphor for his mental deterioration because he was, you know, he's too jealous and can't handle an adult relationship. And so starts on mm. this descent, mm. you know, he, he wants to be a bit, maybe he's very jealous of uh status. So, he then starts to act like him really, you know, like more confident and going to pick up a chick and fighting people in a bar, essentially. Uh, just one way I looked at it when I was um, watching it. Well, earlier. yeah, I, I think through no fault of her own, uh, Ronnie is kind of the catalyst for a lot of this stuff. Like love, love gives Brundle the confidence to kind of progress with what he's doing. Uh, the sex inspires him when he, the flesh and the steak, you know, that part, um, and then his, like you said, his jealousy and paranoia of Stathis combined with the booze and, you know, a baboon not being a great person to have a chat with when you're feeling <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of, it, it dri- drives him to go through prematurely, go, mm. go through the, uh, the yeah. pods. Make so a bad you, decision. Yeah, exactly. Even in retrospect, you can see that, uh, when you look kind of back at his early behavior from the perspective of, of what he becomes, it's like, even in his early scene, even though we like him because he's Jeff Goldblum and he's kind of twitchy and nervous and weird and likable, and he still kind of pursues her around the party, openly just says, you should come back to mine. What do you want me to be specific here in this room with uh, half the scientific community of North America eavesdropping? Is there another way? Uh, You could come back to my lab. Listen, I'll make you cappuccino. I have a fiame of my very own. You know what that is? It's not the Dilettante's plastic kitchen model. It's one of those uh, uh, real restaurant espresso machines with an eagle on top. Somehow I get the feeling you don't get out much. You can tell that? Yeah. Just going on what um, what you guys said about Ronnie being the catalyst, if you think about Seth's transformation, it happens almost immediately yeah, after yeah. he meets Ronnie. Mm-hmm. Because he talks, when he meets her, she says... Um, uh, like, do you change your clothes? And he says, no, I'm, I do what Einstein do. I have five sets of the same clothes so I can preserve, uh, sort of my brain power. Uh, and then as soon as they, as soon as they have their romance, Gets and it that starts to blossom, she buys him, she buys him the flannel, she buys him that horrible flannel shirt and the dreadful leather jacket. It's of an which enormous, lousy, wearing. brown leather bomber. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah but but he immediately starts wearing it and that is the first moment he starts to change mm. you know it's a it's an external well, one before we then it's see quicker than that isn't it because when he goes through he's got the hairs on his back you know i was very no no i know patrick i'm on about before he's even gone through he's starting to change there's, yeah there's a change in his behavior before yes. there's a physical yeah. change yeah. Mm. so i did think gina davis was uh really good in this film though i thought um i thought she was great i think uh mm. you, you matt and Gallia particularly you spoke about the emotional kind of connection that you have with this and it comes from a believable relationship right and she's got to sell that and it, they were actually yeah. partners in in real life at the time they were dating at the same time. right right and um jeff goldblum encouraged um 
them to consider her and Cronenberg was quite wowed by her audition. She but, said, under the sticky stuff, it's a love story. That was her quote. Yeah, <laughs> she did. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's, uh, I think she's wonderful. I mean, it's, listen, we'll get into Goldblum. He's, there's no denying he's absolutely fantastic in this. And, and I'll, you know, I'll wax lyrical about it when we get to him. But Jeannie Davis is, is pretty much the MVP of this because actually she's got to be sexy, funny. She's also got to be strong and she believably dominates Brundle in the early parts of the film. Like she's the one that makes the first move when they have sex. She's the one that just says, you know, you're cute. And she just goes in and she's the one as well. Like if she was a weak character, she wouldn't be, she wouldn't say to Brundle at the moment where it tragically turns, I've actually got to do something and deal with the remnants of my old life. She doesn't seek Brundle to support Mm. her. She's just like, I'm going to deal with this and I'll come back. And, and she actually has to go through a hell of a lot. And in the end, she gives the, you know, she, she delves the killer blow as well. It's a, it's a real, it's a real star performance. The emotion at the end when she drives herself to do it, uh, oh, you can feel every beat of that scene. Well, I was a bit annoyed to see that deleted scene. Um, there's a very strange deleted scene with a, a where her and Stathis end up together. Actually, after yeah. she's killed Brundlefly. She's in bed with uh, Stathis and uh, she's waking up from a nightmare uh, about having Brundle's child. This is Probably the butterfly another, one. Uh, yeah, this is the butterfly one. And and as she's going to sleep, she's kind of smiling and um, there's an image kind of inside inside her body of, of this baby with blue butterfly wings. And I think it was just a way to soften and lighten that brutal blow at the end, but the, the, the way it is now in the theatrical is just, it's perfect. Uh, it, it's really, oh, I love the nihilism. Strong. Yeah. Just the idea of like, I think, you know, one of you mentioned about like the bummer ending, yeah. but it kind of feels absolutely apt. Like that ending where she's, she's, she's distraught. She blows his head off. We have no moments. <laughs> kind of, we have no cathartic moment yeah. to sit. We just go, and that is the end. Well, I think it's, uh, was it Roger Corman that said, when, when the monster is dead, the movie is officially over. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Well, Cronenberg's quote about this film, as he said, every love story must end tragically. And, you know, it's, that's exactly how this film ends. And we haven't talked about Jeff Gold. Well, I was going to call him Jeff, like I know him, but I don't. Um, but he, he is. He is, he's really strong in yeah. the film and he's got a lot to do. It's a very showy performance. He's able to. It's an to award-winning kind of... performance for me, Gally. It's, it's a, Oscars don't like horror films, but I think he was robbed a bit here. Well, it's, it's not just his twitchiness when he transforms. It, his, the scariest moments with Goldblum is the initial transformation. You know, the moment when it's one of my favorite scenes, actually, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead slightly, but when he starts talking about the dynamic duo, mm. And he says the straight line about the flesh. You don't, you only know society's version of the flesh. And he's kind of properly talking in this bombastic language. And then we have a shot of him walking down the street and the music Mm. we've talked about underscoring the emotion. Well, this thing just (laughs) bleeds in your ears. But the terror, it reminded me a little bit of um, Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs Mm. when he breaks out of the prison yeah and another great howard shaw moment you're afraid to be destroyed recreated aren't you i bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh don't you but you only know society's straight line about the flesh you can't penetrate beyond society's sick gray fear of the flesh 
Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? No, I'm just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. I'm a big Goldblum fan, I think. like He's a proactive character here, but we're kind of ahead of him. We know his fate before he does. And it kind of takes an awful lot of charisma and watchability to pull that off, I think. Recognising it as and a tragedy is, is is a bit killer watching this, isn't it, Matt? Because like, it, it's, yeah. it's so... I don't know. You You maintain hope for a long time. And even with yeah, but you, you know, it's ultimately but, called the fly, and you know it's going to yeah, not going to go. You can't, well you can't really him. see a happy ending to. And the more every time we see him, that gradual, I don't know, ten percent more uh, deterioration. It just you just start mm-hmm. to chip away at the audience, mm-hmm. and you just lose more and more hope. And it is. Well, I'm a big Imagine. fan of that in, in horror movies. That The Exorcist does it particularly well. Like every time you go back to to Reagan's room. It's worse. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of, you end up dreading every time you go back in there. It's like, Oh, don't go back in. And then every night in the Blair Witch Project, every time they have to camp again, something worse happens. Mm-hmm. Every, There's another rock. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just, it's all staggered really well. And, uh, th- as a horror movie trope, I think that's, mm. that, that's just a knockout. It always works if you do it properly. Yeah. Well, did you, did you hear about the, the cinematographer, Mark Irwin? discuss this again in the the making of um where he said that he found that horror films that that are lit the whole way through as horror films are not scary because you just kind of get used to the backdrop and again the theme running through of transformation so we've talked about brundle's costuming that changes along with clearly the the makeup and the and the deterioration but the other thing that deteriorates is the lighting. So the film starts with this very bright, almost you could argue flat look, and then slowly dissolves into, by the end, harsh contrast, shadows, mood lighting. You know, the warehouse that we've become so accustomed to that we've spent basically the entire film in has become a dungeon and the monster comes from beneath and it's just really clever. And it sounds so simple, but... So many films have got this horribly wrong, and this one just seems to just be so. Did you well see the way? Through. Did you notice the way he'd lit Gina Davis as well, Gally? It's um, she's very romantically, classically lit. Uh, oh backlight. yeah, yeah. Well, it's that scene, isn't it? With the the line that I used, you know, that I twisted into podcast when he's when he's talking about the 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 fly that dreamt he was a man. Mm-hmm. That's the bit mm-hmm. where the shadows mm-hmm. over him and Gina Davis is shot like it's. You know, it's like a fifty. It is, film yeah. It's, it's she's, she's, yeah, um, and her hair, I think, really adds to it as well. She's got big hair, and the light catching through it is is really striking for her. And I think it does emphasize that she she is well as much of a leading character in the film, really. Yeah, that's that's hands down my favorite scene: the uh, the insect politics. Talk. Oh, it's it's completely <laughs> entrancing, isn't it? Yeah, hanging I mean, on every it, word. It could be like so much of this. You, you don't quite pitch it right. You don't pitch the performance right. You don't get the makeup quite right. Mm-hmm. It's it's so easy to tip into parody, and it never does. It's just kind of devastating. It's like 
the for all the there aren't that many scenes of of outright kind of splatter gore things to kind of there's there's enough of it sprinkled throughout that you have a really quite kind of deep sense of, of dread but it's it's got an admirable amount of restraint for most of the runtime but knowing that the, the implied violence in the phrase if you stay here i will hurt you it's not even implied it's literally just, it's 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 blatant and it's stated yeah, and yeah. It, it ties into the idea of you know the the descent of of a of a man who we had thought of as being quite a good you know a good kind-hearted man is 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 core just a, a, a horrible animal creature i'd like to become the first insect politician you see i'd like to uh, but oh i'm afraid uh, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying. I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying I'll hurt you this day. One of the things that I love is that you still get a glimpse. It's almost like um, there's still a little bit of Seth at every moment through the transformation. So when he's in the crutches, he says this one line, and it's just like, you know, you not say blink because you, you hear it, but if you... You know, you turn away, you don't hear it. He says, oh, you look, you look so pretty. He mm. says a line like, and it just, it reminds you of this, mm-hmm. this guy really does, find, you know, he loves Ronnie. The very first dagger, I think, is, is the point at which he snaps at her when he's standing there in his pants. And you think it could be, again, a scene that if you don't get it quite right, it is stupid because this man in his tight and mm-hmm. whiteies. But when he just says, <laughs> yeah. you're a fucking drag, you know that. And it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. Because you forget that yeah. for all he's likable and weird and, you know, yeah. and a bit of an oddball, he's also like a big guy. Like he's, he's mm-hmm. he can be quite physically imposing. And it's the first time you see the kind of, well, we understand uh, he's now physically stronger as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, yeah, um, there is a, there's a hint to that just before that, Dev, where she interviews him and he's very awkward on camera. Uh, and she's like, go on, say that they, they want to know. And he says, fuck is what I'm thinking. It's like, good, good. Yeah. You know, like use mm. your emotions. She's bringing it out of him. And it, it's scary to, to see what was brought out of him eventually. Because- well, he gets to play like both sides of a coin, doesn't he? He's got this sensitivity and vulnerability at the beginning. And there's this bit where it's his happiest point where he says, are we having a romance? Mm. And uh, Ronnie asks him to go away with her on a holiday. Uh, there's a some deleted dialogue there that was in the making of about, um, he says, if he doesn't share everything with her, it's like it hasn't happened. And she says that that sounds like love. And mm. he, who has evidently never been in love before, kind of defers to her with this kind of innocence as if to say, well, am I in love? He's kind of asking rather than knowing. Um, you know, yeah. we really like him at that point. He's nerdy, but he's a, a pleasant chap. And, you know, you need that at the beginning to get the full shocking effect of, of Brundlefly's actions yeah. at the end. And after um, the you know, s- selfishly sacrificing her and the kid yeah. 
to to, yeah. be, to all be as one, you know. This is desperate last attempt, isn't it? Well, that's it. Like, I mean, so I remember when I was younger, I guess this is probably the Jeff Goldblum of it all because I absolutely saw The Fly after I saw Jurassic Park. And it's very difficult to kind of rally against Jeff Goldblum after you've seen Jurassic Park, especially as many times as I did. Uh, so I guess I rationalized it in my head that at the end he was, he was priming Stathis to then de- debilitate him so he could just put him in the pod. But now watching it, his, his entire, uh, sort of plan is to get Ronnie and the baby in the pods. And that just makes him just utterly irredeemable at that point. But, but I guess I, I guess this is me looking at Jeff Goldblum, the actor, not, Seth Brundle, the I do appreciate in his performance as well and in the script there's a lot of uh, ironical humour th- throughout his performance and little jokes that he says which is kind of well it's also a tragic kind of element to his character because he's laughing at his own well he's trying to bring humour to his own den- demise mm. in a in a knowing way there's the Museum there's of a, Natural History he's got his yeah. dick in a jar <laughs> yeah. with his penis <laughs> in a, the medical cabinet <laughs> like yeah uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> god and then you know like he, he quips to her like you've missed some good moments with the knowing like childish mm. boyard smile that he, he knows and hopes the way i see it is he hopes that she's still enamored by and the, it, again we go back to gina davis's relationship with him but she she really sells that she's in love with him i never once like stopped believing that um and that's, I think that's the power of that. It makes you believe and, uh, go back to the Beauty and the Beast thing in reverse here. Like the worse he gets, she still can't let go. And she, she still needs to, she still holds to him and wants to help him and, and hopefully save him. Well, I mean, Patrick, one of the, one of the big comedic moments, I mean, it gets a laugh out of me every time. <laughs> and it, I think, I think Cronenberg is going for it is when he throws up on that donut and just goes, Oh, no. <laughs> oh yeah, and then his ear falls off. But that's the thing: his ear falls off, and you immediately snap back to, "Oh my yeah. god!" Like because well, he says, "Like help me," and obviously it's a bit of a reference to yeah. the fifties yeah. version with the "help me." All filmmakers have described that kind of that strange tightrope that you that you walk down with horror and comedy. You know, Sam Raimi is as a master of it. Uh, and this definitely has that because you go from thrown up to a donut, <laughs> oh, that's disgusting, to um, is it a fallen off? And all of a sudden... He's breaking down. Hmm. Well, uh, uh, well, that bit where he vomits is quite disturbing because it's one of the first times he... It's an involuntary yeah, action, yeah. isn't it? It's like he, he's not in control of what his body is, is doing. He's becoming his facial else, expression, so, Matt, yeah. on Goldblum, he really sells that, doesn't he? Because he's completely oh, yeah. horrified here and it's very... Very worrying to, to, to you, to watching on the audience. Um, but uh, more comedy though is when they make the, the video. What is it? The Chronicles of the Brundle Fly, the Life and Times. Yeah. Ready for a demonstration, <laughs> yeah. kids? The, the decision there to, to go back on to, um, what's his name with the beard and to see his reactions. Yeah. 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 Well, you were talked before about, uh, when we lose empathy for, for Brundle. Uh, and there, there is a famous, uh, deleted scene that we mentioned earlier about the, uh, the, the monkey cat. I have you for introducing me to this yet, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there is, um, 
a scene that was that was shot where he fused a monkey and a cat. It was originally going to be a monkey and a cat, and then they changed it to baboons quite late on. So the effects team had to like take the monkey head off and put a baboon head on and like cha- change it round. And uh, it comes out and it scratches him and uh, attacks him, and he beats it to death with a uh, a lead pipe. And it's all it, it, they they screened it in Vancouver apparently. And, uh, the, the audience reception was, was pretty negative. I think they, they were worried that you, you would completely lose any empathy for Brundle at that point. And you need to hang on to that, like until a, a little later, at least. Yeah. Well, I, I, I actually think it's less about empathy for Brundle and it's more what Devlin was referring to about getting the tone right and, and, and sort of leaning into kind of goofiness. You, you that thought that played scene, a bit funny. I, when, oh, it just plays ridiculous because not only does the monkey cat look <laughs> just inherently stupid, <laughs> I, I think I, I messaged you offline and just said it reminded me of the little rat thing that hangs out with <laughs> Jedi Hutt yeah. in yeah. Return of the Jedi. And it, it looks like that. And, and the fact that he's beating it, I mean, he may as well have beaten it with a man's shoe. <laughs> I do like the arm growing out of him, though, Matt, that comes yeah. a couple of minutes later. The, the, the other sad thing, like, before we get to that bit, uh, there, there's a makeup stage which has been completely erased from the movie because of that cut. Uh, I can't remember what they called it. It was like the 4A makeup or something. And as we said before, each time you go back to Brundle, you get a different view of his kind of metamorphosis into this thing. And uh, that one was completely edited out. Um, it, it was kind of a mid stage where he kind of had a, almost like a bruised eye and his arms are like twisted around in a really unusual way. Um, but yeah, it led to this next scene where he crawls down the wall and falls onto this. Well, there's a great bit before that actually where he's on top of a rooftop and he starts yelling. No, um, no, no, no. And he, he's kind of yelping like a dog. And that's like his lowest ebb, as they say in all the screenwriting literature. And uh, that's like his, he falls down the wall onto this weird corrugated iron roof. <laughs> and then he sprouts this leg out that, that Patrick's re- referring to. Lord. And then uh, he, he kind of gnaws it <laughs> off because he's, he doesn't Stop know what it, to do. Mate. He's got Stop these, like, <laughs> he's got these uh, Barbarella doll teeth that he kind of uses <laughs> to. To, to, to bite it off but yeah it's, it's crazy it's a crazy scene but sometimes i think you need to go too far in order to pull back to like the point where it belongs yeah. and those two scenes arguably don't belong in the movie but perhaps they needed to be shot to to find the the line yeah. where where Cronenberg same with the butterfly as well to, right yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah. Listen, we've we've kind of uh, been avoiding it slightly, but the the makeup and creature effects. I mean, they are they still 1986. I mean, they're pretty incredible, and it it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Stan Winston with the original Terminator. Just yes, you could probably, if you look close, with 4K now. Yeah, you can tell that oh, it's, it's pretty good. It's a man in a suit, but fucking hell, is it super effective? Because when you bring Direction, composition, performance, and then the makeup and the creature effects. It, and you bring them all together and you can sell it as, as being real because you should be grossed out, horrified, and also 
just petrified at what you're watching on the screen. And I, I feel all of those. There was another thing that Wallet, um, Cronenberg said to, uh, Chris Wallace, 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 I think. Sorry, I was struggling there. Um, and what Wallace is that, you know, he's going, th- again, they seemed like they had a very good working relationship. And he said, you want someone in a, he proposed things of someone in a suit for the fly at the end for the crescendo. Mm. And Cronenberg's like, no, it's got to look more unnatural than that. And if you see some of the, there's some nice behind the scenes stuff on, on YouTube and the animatronics of the legs, but on, on camera, on, on screen, yeah. it's flawless. That, that kind of penultimate transformation where all the bits are kind of neatly dropping off, like, <gasps> like bits of meat. Oh, God, his jaw. Oh, starting with the jaw. Kind of revealed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> That's great, Matt, yeah. Matt, you say meat. If you want to watch this film again and be even more <laughs> grossed out, it's kebab meat. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Never again. There's no kebabs in Korea. It's that, so it's that munchie box we got in Glasgow that time, Gally. Infamous. <laughs> 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 Excuse, excuse me, uh, Squire. Do you have any more beige? Actually, in my box. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit red. Three pizza boxes full of whatever shit you have left at three AM. <laughs> that will be six pounds, please. <laughs> Good lord! It's one of those classic things of you know when you see a horror film, you think you've seen more than you actually have. Hmm. I I, re- I realized I thought that the true genius in this was not seeing elements of it which is right which is why i really like when he's recording the chronicles a bit and it cuts away because i think mm. that's very kind of a moment because we've already seen the vomit and it, mm. it to see his reaction is far more compelling i, I think and a very clever right. idea but when he vomits on the hand uh and the foot the ankle at the end uh, my jaw was Ooh. dropped the other day i was astonished by it i thought it looked incredible and it was just horrifying you know is is it seth is it the fly taking over is it an action of them whoa this is true horror and and, and he sort of revels in it like it's what they make you sit and watch it and it's um it's for a film that's had like so much restraint up until that point Mm. The ankle melting, especially oh, like the doing it, doing it twice, yeah. and then the second one being more horrible than the first. Oh, unbelievable! And, look and then on, you, on you believe he's going to go to the face next. Yeah, you, yeah. You yeah. think it's really going to happen? And, well, and, uh, yeah. and and John gets. I mean, you know, we we never really talked because I don't think we've had a film yet where we've had multiple deaths or indeed a, an impressive death. But him, like his his physical reaction to those things happening mm-hmm. his facial expressions just sells how utterly painful it must be to yeah. have your ankle melted oh, fuck me. Look at his face. Yeah. he's like half passed out but <sighs> still sort of feeling but he's in shock he's, he's still conscious yeah it's, yeah. Oh, it's so so strong I, I love it but then he's still very bitter in the fly too as well <laughs> you think <laughs> Matt don't worry we'll talk the fly too in a second don't you worry I hope but so but then it really ramps up to all of that dragging her into the pod. And they've got the uh, yeah. A to B. They're going to splice A and B into C is the idea, you know, they get um, to, to make him one with, with um, Veronica and the baby to try and solve this, to make him mm. more human, which is an interesting science fiction idea. But when he's dragging her and, and I, I kind of forgotten that he did get her in the pod and locks the door and, Mm. I'm really fucking shitting myself at this point because when he goes into his pot, just the face, the, the face of the fly, the movement, the eyes, and that, that thing I said mm. with when he's designing it, he says he wants to see more 
empathy and confusion in the eyes of this of this machine it totally pays off and i'm really glad that that was a a really successful um effect and patrick what what i love as well is um we get that one i mean it's not necessarily redemptive but the idea that there's still a little bit of seth in where he grabs the shotgun oh that's where i was going to yeah it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking it it really is and 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 you mentioned it earlier but i mean i'll i'll double down on it gina davis just oh my god yeah it's so so strong and when she shoots so reluctant yet so absolutely inevitable one thing that i haven't really stressed is this is a proper three-hander and and when I was watching it, and I've always thought this to be fair, is what I just admire the fact that this is essentially a stage play. Like mm. the the there's minimal locations, minimal characters. Well, they turned it into an opera, and also the score. Uh, it, isn't the score inspired by Madame Butterfly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, they exactly they took that. a few bars of that, and that's how they kind of came up oh. with um, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the basis for the score, which yeah. uh, uh, was inspired by this. This scene of the of the baby with the butterfly wings, which ended up not being in the film, exactly. it's kind of odd that something that that had such a because we all said the score was so incredible and the fact that it was kind of inspired by something which ended up not really having. Yeah. Well, I don't really mind when it's just pumping through my ears, though, Dev, because yeah. it is so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just cool to see like how these kind of weird sort of sparks of inspiration can can come out of out of somewhere, and even if they end up not being so overt. They're still woven into the tapestry of it. It's quite interesting. But, but that's where my admiration lies. It's that, that, you know, here, here we have a very, very small, almost insular film, yet it's so cinematic. And that, and that, that really is the strength of Cronenberg that he's able to kind of turn, turn this into what feels like, like almost like an event movie. Mm. But it's a, it's a, it's a monster movie. It's a drama. It's a romance. It's a comedy. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite a feat. That he manages to deliver on 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 all those fronts, and and one of the things we talked about in the Crow, which is why it's so impactful in this, is that we we some of us struggled to to really care mm-hmm. about Eric and Shelley's demise because we never really got to see them as a couple. But mm. you know, the Fly, we we hang out with these characters and we care about them. So when when it all starts to turn tragically wrong. A la Titanic, um, yeah, we do care about it. Well, I, I likened it from yeah. that aspect as well, Gally, to um, another film that Mel Brooks actually produced was um, The Elephant Man. Mm. And, you know, yeah. the, the empathy that was created and therefore, yeah. uh, lack of a better word, but um, uh, someone who's dying, I'll, I'll word it that way. You know, it was very well achieved in that and that was I think this may have taken something from that as well. Well, it just goes to show, like if if you spend that time and and you do it right, it can really be effective mm. in such a short film. And like you said, Patrick, it's so pacey as well. But you know, it's it's all there. You need you need to spend a bit more more time with them. I wish there was a little bit more of that with with the crow. But again, I understand that 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 had to move at a slightly different with a slightly different momentum, didn't it? Mm. It was a very different kind of piece. We've not really mentioned the sequel. But I did mention it in my intro because I did see it, like, I saw it about five or six mm. times because it was, it was constantly on rotation on, uh, on TV, late night TV. I'm thinking Channel 4 definitely used to play it a lot. And, yeah. uh, I, have any of you seen it? I know you have, Matt, but Patrick Devlin, you seen The mm. Fly too? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I've actually, uh, 
just skipped through it today on some sort of uh, one of those little 15-minute Cliff Notes versions of YouTube because I, I I wanted to at least have some vague idea of what exactly it, it was about. But um, I, I've, I've not um, – uh, I didn't know much about it. I was telling you, Gally, the other day that um, – this is slightly off topic, but um, I've, I've now completely forgotten his name. Eric Stoltz. Stoltz. Eric so I, Stoltz. I watched um, – the other day I was watching the um, – Kicking and Screaming, which is Noah Baumbach's first movie. I'd never seen it. Uh, it, it just happens to be, I think it's on Sky, and I just um, downloaded it. Me and my girlfriend wanted to watch it. She's a big Noah Baumbach fan. It's a good film. It's actually a very good film, but um, uh, there's a, a character in it, this kind of um, kind of late 20s guy, ginger hair, kind of chatty, uh, sort of an interesting mm-hmm. character, one of the more interesting characters in the film. I was like, I fucking know that guy. And I was staring right at him for the entire duration of like a 100-minute film. And I was looking right in his face and I could not tell that it was Eric Stoltz, even though I know full well who Eric Stoltz is. It's like I'm watching him, realizing that he's quite good. And yet I literally, every single time I see Eric Stoltz, I forget that that's who it is. I think that what does he look f- like in it? Does he look like the Pulp Fiction Lance um, version like of Eric Stoltz? Yeah, he- yeah he's, he's, you know, he's, got the slight, <laughs> he's got the slightly longer hair and stuff. It's like... It's like just, the, the rules of attraction, Eric Stoltz. Uh, just, you ever seen yeah. that where he's the teacher and he, but once, bearded, once long again, hair? I, 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 I like, I, I haven't seen it in a few years, oh, but I like rules of attraction. But I, Eric Stoltz, maybe that's why he never made it as like a full blown top line movie star. Because <laughs> no it, one knows who he is. Everyone forgets, everyone forgets who his face is, <laughs> even, yeah. even while looking at it. I wish you hadn't said that because mm. I was going to suggest that if you just look in the mirror, you'll see Eric Stoltz. Uh, for those listeners that have never seen Devlin, <laughs> it's essentially <laughs> what he looked like. It's so wildly inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, I've got some thoughts on the sequel. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. nowhere near it, it, yeah. it, it's nowhere near on the intellectual level of the first film. Um, it's very much though got its own little, you know, got its own little lane, which is it's a proper B-movie monster film. With a great head um, crush, like Matt said. Yeah, it's got... It, oh, it, yeah. And it kind of feels like it's a product of, well, I'm not going to be able to top the first film, so let's just make it make it like a fun date movie. Let's make it a film that the kids can go out and see on a Friday night. I also think and- it, it kind of fell into the trap that, thankfully, The Fly didn't, which... It gets bogged down in its politics and scientists and people trying to to get involved mm. in it. And I'm really glad that we didn't really have that in the fly because sticking to the relationship and, and the characters is, is far better. But um, the fly two does have an amazing deleted scene where Eric Stoltz vomits at a bunch of kids in a car. It's <laughs> 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 incredible. Did you see the... Um... Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, a thing where he apparently had the, the worst pitch meeting ever for The Fly 2. He, he was uh, being talked to by an executive and they said, what do you think about making, remaking, or sorry, making a, a sequel to The Fly? And he said, oh, I think it's, it's a terrible idea. I think, it, you know, the original is amazing and it just shouldn't be made. And then that was the end of the wow. meeting. And it went to, went to someone else. Wow. So he respected it so much that he didn't even touch it. Well, the, the so. director was, um, was the Academy Award winning because we haven't even mentioned it, but the, the yeah, makeup, Chris was, makeup and cre- creature yeah, effects, yeah. uh, won an Academy Award. Uh, as you said, Patrick, potentially Goldblum, I think, sl- I think as well, robbed 
Um, mm. but yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun film, but it's very much, uh, sort of treading water until we get to the good stuff in the last 30 minutes. <laughs> it's kind of gore laden at the end, mm. isn't it? There's another great bit where there's an acid spray where he vomits acid onto a bloke. And the guy like p- pulls his own face oh, off, yeah. and yes, like re- yeah. re- reveals uh, a skeleton underneath. It's such an amazing effect, and it also has like a, a really grim ending. Like talk about downbeat endings. Like you could argue it's worse than 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 the first one. In, in order to get Eric Stoltz back to normal, um, they he goes into one of the pods, and Bartok and ends up as like this weird dog creature that lives in a pit and then he has to eat this horrible like porridge at the end and there's this amazing shot at the end where he's drinking he can't even eat this (laughs) porridge properly because he's so grotesque and then like the camera moves down and there's a fly on the edge of the like the dog bowl it's the close-up of the uh, eyeball that i like so much just before the fly he's still got consciousness in that eyeball it's the same kind of thing It's, it's you know that he's suffering so Oh, again, scarred for life by that one. <laughs> anyway, team, well, that is our discussion on the fly. So it leads me to ask the pertinent questions. I'll start with you, Devlin. Yes. Final thoughts on the fly, and do you recommend it to our listeners this mm-hmm. Halloween? It was phenomenal. I, like I said, I, I, I hadn't carried, I hadn't carried a lot of um, memories over of this one, which is weird because I remembered the film really, really well when it was like in terms of the beats of the plot and stuff. And I don't know why it was that it just hadn't resonated to the, to the extent that it did this week. But as, as you've all pointed out, um, it depressed the shit out of me in a way that I was not expecting. And that, um, I was extremely impressed by, um, it's kind of weird to think that a film that's almost as old as I am and I am old, um, could have that much of a, a really visceral impact. Um, which, especially considering it's, it's one of the kind of staples of, of, of horror cinema. It's, it's kind of seen as being, you know, one of the, the, the pantheon now of, of 80s horror and where it sits in the horror genre is, is, is a little, um, is, I think you mentioned this, Galley, the idea of like elevated horror. Um, that it's a, it is a very smart film and it's largely just a, a, an emotionally impactful film, which is heightened by and inextricably linked to the horror elements in it. Um, as a Halloween film, uh, it, it wouldn't have immediately struck me, even though it is loosely a creature feature. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a doomed, tragedy uh, a tragic romance um but uh all the great kind of halloween movie marathons you need to have a modulation of tones and um certainly the idea of like the the tragedy being wrapped up with with horror with, like visceral horror as goes back all the way to the start of the genre and um having that emotional anchor just uh just sets this film apart from so many others within the same kind of uh, genre. So, um, yeah, I absolutely recommend it. Um, it, it is fantastic. Um, there's there's not much else to add. I think we covered it quite well. So, um, uh, 
I will hand over to somebody who has a little more of a uh, a history with it. Uh, maybe I'll go over to to you, Patrick. Oh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna add a little bit more history actually uh, here because it's an easy recommend. I think we're all in agreement there. It, mm. One of the things um, I was thinking about when I was watching, and I kind of saved this to the end here because I didn't want to tonally go, go off the mark here, but. A very interesting thing happened to me watching this as an adult because I only really seen it as a uh, teenage or uh, younger years uh, child, and I I think I remember it a lot more because of my mum and dad's reaction to it and their enjoyment of it. Now I need to speak to them in a proper adult conversation about what they think about the flags. I haven't I haven't done I haven't had the chance to do it this week, but I think. I thought this was a lot of a more of a funny film than uh, it is because of their quoting of it, because of their enjoyment of it and how thrilled they were about the film. And they, they remember this film with a smile on their face, you know, and it's something they really like. Um, I'm sure my mum would say, Oh God, no, no, it's horrible because she, she can, she, her reactions to, to horror and gore are quite, quite wonderful. But I, I was so, surprised to see it in a different eyes and more grown up eyes now and, and to match the tone properly as an audience member because I was really wowed by the melancholy and the, the depiction of um, a, a tragic a tragedy lo- love story between the two and their performances are amazing I was really enthralled by that uh, and like when it's like when Matt said very early on in this podcast, he didn't really understand it when he was a kid and I, I didn't either. That's what I'm kind of saying. Um, so it was great to have this chat and to watch it now to understand it a lot more and to see what a deep layered film this is and to really revel in, um, the genius of it. Um, <clears throat> Matt, you mentioned the arm wrestle is kind of one of your favorite scenes that I remember that vividly when I was younger being really kind of freaked out by that arm coming bone coming out of the arm because watching it the other day is so realistic it's unbelievable yeah um and I can see why my younger self kind of and my mum and dad chuckling along to the bits of humor the ironic like melancholic humor that we discussed and I did find myself laughing um at the baboon scene uh, when he's drinking champagne like shots of vodka uh, <laughs> kind of like propel him on um i think it looks amazing i'm really wowed by it and uh, it, it emotively really really got me and um a, a film like this that pulls you each way uh emotionally and takes you through the mill is something to really be enjoyed i think uh galley please well, all I'll say is get a full can of Raid to hand and watch The Fly this Halloween. Uh, I promise you will not be disappointed. Uh, I think this film still sends shivers down my spine. And uh, and I said earlier, um, it maybe it's because I'm older, but it really did kind of uh, put into sharp focus the fact that I'm facing my own mortality and the eventual demise uh, that is depicted in the film. Uh, is creeping around the corner. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's masterfully, uh, directed, uh, wonderfully. You know, we haven't really talked about the other, uh, departments within the film, but the cinematography, the costuming, the production design, when you consider that you're in a location for the majority of the film that is a warehouse and how boring that could very be. Free Jack, I'm looking at you. You know, th- they really do 
managed to to make. Well, yeah, we only even talked about the budget, but I think it was like eleven million dollars in nineteen eighty six. So it's it's not a great deal of money, and uh, and it really does show you what a a sort of a spearhead who no, understands a vision can achieve. And uh, and I think they should be on absolutely on everybody's watch list this year because uh, it'll make you sad, make you mad, and make you fear the inevitable. Uh, doom that awaits. So, what could be more <laughs> what could be more entertaining than facing death itself? So, yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely my recommendation. Um, yeah, I, I loved it, and it's not just because I picked it. I was kind of worried that I might sort of start picking holes at it, but uh, luckily, the fly two was there for that. So, there we are. Um, what about you, Matt? Well, I was thrilled that you picked this one, Gally, because I would certainly choose it as far as like my list of rewind choices, not even just as a Halloween pick, just generally speaking, it's a seminal film for me. Uh, it's a tight and tidy 95 minutes. Doesn't waste any time. It's very pacey, as we said earlier. Uh, and when, when it gets going, it's just relentless. Um, it's, you know, dark sci-fi taken seriously is sort of my thing. I really enjoy that. This one was captivating, gripping, enthralling. Uh, I, can't imagine what kind of person could switch it off once it's begun. Like maybe someone could be turned off by the gore, but, um, you know, I just have to see what happens next. It feels like watching a car crash or, or a tragic real life event or something. You just can't look away. Um, so not only does Jeff Goldblum pull off his fingernails, he also pulls off a strategic measured performance. Uh, it's, it's probably my favorite Goldblum because he, gets this full movie to develop and be in context weird. Um, not just talk show weird or something like that. You know, he, it, with everything and everyone working around him like clockwork, really. Uh, I think the direction is superb. Uh, Cronenberg's voice is heard loud and clear and his vision is, is uh, crystal clear too. I think it's probably his best, uh, certainly the most accessible and, I think the most successful of his films, it does kind of transcend the genre. We mentioned this earlier about this, this disdain for horror sometimes. Um, like I really respect and revere the horror genre anyway. And I think films like this are a terrific way to effectively explore themes like these. So I think it's an, ex uh, an outstanding piece of work and, uh, yeah, six legs up from me. So <laughs> lovely, uh, lovely. Yeah. Hey. Hey, uh, Matt, you never said what did, uh, what did Siskel and Ebert think? Um, I did not look at their review of this one. I think I've lost faith in them completely. I've, 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 <laughs> okay. There's, uh, there's a long and very, um, uh, uh, very complimentary article on, uh, Roger Ebert's site, but not written. By oh, he, he loves to, um, change. I, I know he's not around anymore, but he, th there was a period where he changed his reviews. This was amazing. To right. me. He, he, he would slag things off and then years later he would change them, change his opinion on it for a wow. book. And, uh, and now it's someone else writing for rogerebert.com. So yeah, I, I've abandoned all hope with, with those two. Uh, I, I did see their, uh, Siskel and Niebuhr's list of the best, top 10 films of the eighties from them. And, um, it didn't, neither of them, uh, included Back to the Future. So I, I've fallen out with them. Oh, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, there you go. Maybe, maybe, maybe if Eric Stoltz was in it. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> um, for those listeners that uh, want to seek out The Fly, 
Um, it, don't worry, it's not just on uh, the the current vice president's head. Uh, hey. Also, hey, there oh. you go. That's topical, isn't Political. it? <laughs> definitely not going to age poorly in the, in, the week, in the week and a half before you release this. Hence your thoughts, Gully. Slow news day. Oh, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, you know, you like to uh, give the listeners an idea. We're of kind of a time capsule, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. In a way. Or a relic in time. Um, no, uh, yeah, so for those of you that are seeking out the fly, uh, currently in the UK, not on any uh, free-to-air streaming, uh, you will have to purchase it, rent it. Same with the um, second one and the original as well. Can I mention the Cinema Reserve DVD one more time? I, I had it back in England. It was like a, a steel book. I got it very cheaply, and it was it had about a four-hour making of. I want to say four-hour, wow. but I did a bit of research, and it was a little bit under that, I think. It has a Cronenberg commentary and all sorts of stuff on there, so you can pick that up pretty cheap. There is a Fly Collection Blu-ray box. Game, there is by, there? is it a Scream Factory or oh. one of those? Oh, Scream Factory is usually very good. Yeah, they're great. I, I do need to find a way of uh, apologising to listeners about this whole history of violence 69 hook <laughs> i will I, I will find it i'll find it you know don't let me smee uh anyway right so we we move on to our uh our final our final pick which is patrick hey so, yeah it's me patrick please tell us and the listeners what we are going to end this series of halloween films on candy man candy man don't say it. Uh, oh, no, so, right, oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to watch 1992's Candyman. Nice. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm going to save it till we talk about it. And yeah, can't wait. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, that sounds more topical than my fly reference on a pence head. So uh, there yeah, we go. that that was pure accident. I, like, there's a new one coming out. I didn't really consider that with this, but this one is a real Halloween film for me, which is why I picked it. And thank you, Gunny, for your Halloween pick because I loved revisiting the flyer. That was fucking awesome. Right, well, team, we will say our goodbyes. All I'll say, listeners, is be careful. I eat chocolate bars. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> I've never been much of a bather. It's Devlin in London. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. It's Patrick in London. I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a nice person, too, when you saw her socially. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. That time.